millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 5, Oleg the Enigmatic. So, first of all, an apology is in order, as today's episode is a few days outside of the two-week release schedule. Now there is, however, mitigation for this inexcusable lapse, as I've recently started a new job and... I had a milestone birthday to plan, not mine by the way, which in lockdown presented its own unique challenges. Anyway, I'm sure we've all got problems and things should be getting much quieter over the next couple of weeks and I should be back on track. So before we cover anything new, let's take stock and look at where we've got to in our narrative. We left off last time in the year 879. The Rus have come into contact with the Byzantine Empire through various raids and a treaty, established themselves in Novgorod under the semi-mythical Rurik, and have also set themselves up further south in Kiev under two of Rurik's chieftains, Askold and Dyr. But alas, Rurik has now shuffled off this mortal coil, and Novgorod is now in the hands of a certain Oleg, whose job seems to be to be keeping things warm for Rurik's young son, Igor. So in today's episode, we're going to concentrate on two key chunks or themes. Number one, what Oleg gets up to, and of course, as you've probably come to expect, the sources differ, and not just with the dates. And to be honest, it's a very confusing and conflicting picture. So that's really why I took an executive decision and just decided to look at Oleg in this week's episode 
and I'm going to cover Igor's life and times next time around. And then chunk number two, we're going to take a look at some of the other peoples and cultures who were in the vicinity of the Rus's territory in the late 800s and who will play a part in the upcoming episodes. And these people are the Khazars, who I've mentioned previously, and the Magyars, Bulgars and Pechenegs, who I haven't. Although the Kyrnid amongst you probably noticed that I sneaked in a tiny reference to the Magyars in episode 4. But anyway, not to worry. This is going to be a broad brush overview, with the aim being just to fill in some gaps. And, radically, I've decided that I'm going to cover the second chunk first, and the first chunk, well, second. Oh, and then just to finish things off, I'll be taking a look at what's going on, or some of the events that are going on uh, in the rest of the world, which, well, just Europe, really, at the beginning of the 10th century. And this is just to provide some overall context. And remember the last time I did this, it seemed like the Danish and Norwegian Vikings were raiding throughout most of Northern and Western Europe. Okay, Paidion, which I really hope means let's go in Russian. So back in episode three, I offered the briefest of glimpses of the Khazars, and we found out that they were a semi-nomadic Turkic people as are, coincidentally, the Bulgars and Pechenegs, within a confederation of Turkic-speaking tribes that had, in the late 6th century, established a major commercial empire between the Black and Caspian Seas, covering the southeastern section of modern European Russia, southern Ukraine, Crimea and Kazakhstan. And we also found out, based on archaeological findings, that the early Rus and the Khazars traded with each other, and Byzantium, influenced each other's cultures and seemed in the main to rub along quite nicely together. And just a quick note that in fact the Khazars and the Byzantines had been friends mostly and sometime adversaries since the early 600s, so Khazars had been around for some time. And without dwelling on things too much, there's a couple of really interesting things about the Khazars. It used to be widely accepted that at some point in the 740s the Khazars converted to Judaism and that this took place after an Islamic mullah, a Christian priest and a Jewish rabbi had each presented to the Khazarian king the advantages and truths of their relative faiths. This king, however, according to some accounts, had his own logic for determining which faith he should embrace. And he asked each representative in turn which of the other two faiths they considered superior. And the result was that the Muslim indicated Judaism over Christianity and the Christian priest chose Judaism over Islam. The king then concluded that Judaism, being the foundation upon which both of the other monotheistic religions were built, would be that which he and his subjects would embrace. So that sounds like a nice, neat story. Maybe too neat. And there are some serious doubts about this wholesale conversion to Judaism. And whilst today there is some documentary evidence of involvement between the Khazars and the Jews, there is very little archaeological evidence to support this particular hypothesis. And then the second interesting thing is that in terms of caste or class, evidence suggests that there was a distinction 
whether racial or social is unclear, between white Khazars or Ak Khazars and black Khazars or Kara Khazars. The 10th century Muslim geographer Al Istakri claimed that the white Khazars were strikingly handsome, with reddish hair, white skin, and blue eyes, while the black Khazars were swarthy, or swarthy even, <laughs> verging on deep black, as if they were, and I quote, some kind of Indian, all of which sounds racial to me. However, many Turkic nations had a similar division between a white ruling warrior caste and a black class of commoners. But this was a political and non-racial uh, differentiation, so maybe Alice Tahkri had got the wrong end of the stick. Anyway, and apart from all of that, by the time we get to the latter half of the 9th century, Khazaria, which lay to the southeast of the Rus territory, is on the wane, and we'll hear more about this in the coming weeks. Next up, it's the Magyars, who are the only one of the four peoples that we're looking at today who are not Turkic in origin, as they are a Uralic or Ugric people, and this is based on the linguistic evidence and, and a lot of supposition. And the Magyars probably originated in either the Ural Mountains, Western Siberia, or the Middle Volga region. And by the latter part of the 9th century, the Magyars, who are the forerunners of the modern-day Hungarians, are around three-quarters of the way through an east-to-west, 3,000-year-long, 2,000-mile migration. Bit of a mouthful, I'm sorry. It was a big migration over a long period of time. Uh, and they started off, let's presume, in the Urals, and the end point was Hungary. Now, currently, at the time of our story, they're located in the western Ukraine, just to the west of the Rus. In the early 900s, they started a bit of raiding themselves, smashing into the territories of present-day Germany, France and Italy, and this five-decade-long Hungarian expansion was only checked in the year 955 at the Battle of Lechfeld, which effectively ended the raids against Western Europe, but saw the Magyar marauding continue throughout the Balkan Peninsula until 970. Third in the list is the Bulgars. Now, the origin of the early Bulgars, Bulgars, again, remains a bit of a mystery. But nowadays, their homeland is believed to have been situated either in Kazakhstan, the northern Caucasian steppe, or that birthplace of a whole plethora of different peoples, the Pontic-Caspian steppe. Wherever it was, historians refer to this Bulgar homeland as Old Great Bulgaria. But in the late 7th century, this entity was absorbed by the Khazars, and by the time we reach the late 800s, the Bulgars are split between present-day Bulgaria, or Danubian Bulgaria, southwest of the Rus, and another domain in the Middle Volga region named, unsurprisingly, Volga Bulgaria, which lay to the east of the Rus territories. And in 865, during the reign of Khan Boris I, and this was between 852 and 889, the Bulgars accepted Christianity as their official religion, and in a nod to the Byzantines, it's the Eastern Orthodox variant that they finally settle on. And, incidentally, they won't be the last people to go down this route, as we'll soon find out. And then, under the rule of Simeon I, between 893 and 927, 
we have what is considered to be the Bulgarian Golden Age. And last but not least, we come to the Pechenegs. The Pechenegs are another Turkic-speaking tribal confederation who originated in the Volga-Ural region. But by the late 9th century and under pressure from the Khazars, the Pechenegs were pushed west into the southern Russian steppe, setting up shop on either side of the Dnieper River. Now you're probably thinking, isn't that where the Rus are? Well, and yes, you're right. However, the Pechenegs weren't strong enough to create a true political entity and were not at this point really seen as any kind of threat to the existence of the Rus state. Yeah, there would have been the occasional raid or clash, but the vast majority of Rus-Pechenegh activity during this time was based around trade. Again, we'll hear more about these Pechenegs as we meander on through the 10th and 11th centuries. Okay, nice, short and sharp. That's our first bit of the episode done, so let's just quickly summarise. It's the late 9th century, so the late 800s. The Rus are fairly well established and are bordered by the Khazars to the southeast, the Pechenegs to their south, the Magyars to the west, and the Bulgars to the east and the south. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, let's start part two by taking a, a look at Oleg, or Helgi, as he was known in Old Norse. Now, Oleg is sometimes referred to as Grand Prince Oleg, or Oleg the Prophet, Oleg the Wise, or just simply Oleg of Novgorod. So who was this man who Rurik entrusted with the keys to the Rus kingdom, and what did he get up to? Well, to be honest, and hence the title of this episode, he's a bit of an enigma. He's one of those people where the more you read about him, the less you seem to know. So what I'm going to do is go through the accepted story, the widely accepted story, as laid out in Nestor's primary chronicle. And I'll pause for comment when other sources claim a different series of dates or events. So, according to Nestor, Oleg was related to Rurik, and as we found out last time, was possibly his brother-in-law, and therefore possibly an uncle to young Igor. And here's our first point of difference, because according to the Novgorod First Chronicle, Oleg was not related to Rurik and was instead a Scandinavian client prince who served as Igor's army commander. And we'll go into this uh, in a bit more detail next week. 
And again, we don't know where he originally came from or when he was born. And in fact, a first glimpse of him is in 879 when he took over as the head of the Rus in Novgorod, spent a couple of years consolidating his rule, and then probably in the year 882, we are told that he headed south down the Dnieper River, taking with him many Rus and Slav warriors and captured two small trading settlements, first at the site of modern-day Smolensk and then at the site of modern-day Lyubech, leaving garrisons in both. But capturing Smolensk and Lyubech, from whom we're not told, and so we have to assume it was either an unassimilated group of Slavs, or maybe the Pechenegs, or maybe the Khazars, was not Oleg's key aim. That lay 160 miles further south, at a place called Kiev. Yes, Oleg is on his way to Kiev. When he arrived on the outskirts of the town, he learnt of how Askold and Deer ruled there, which I'm kind of sure he would have had prior knowledge of, but anyway, let's go with it. And what he did was he hid most of his warriors in the boats, left some others behind, and went forward with a small retinue and one other notable person, his young nephew, Igor. He then got his small remaining bunch of henchmen to hide nearby and sent others as messengers to Askold and Deer, representing himself as a stranger on his way to Greece on an errand for Oleg and for Igor, and requested that they should both come and meet, meet them. Of course, Askold and Deer come straight away. And then, yeah, you probably guess what's happened. The soldiers who've been hiding jump up and seize them both. And then Oleg pronounces the following to Askold and Deer. You are not princes, nor even of princely stock, but I am of princely birth. And then Igor was then brought forward, and Oleg announced that he was the son of Rurik, and without any further conversation, Askold and Deer are then murdered in cold blood and buried by a nearby hill. And just like that, Oleg is the new de facto ruler of Kiev. There are no other signs of any kind of fighting or struggle, and yet this supposed taking of Kiev using only minimal force is an event that has inspired many composers and writers, including Pushkin's Song of Oleg the Wise, which is learned and recited in Russian schools and was even referenced by Vladimir Putin at a press conference in 2008, shortly after he became president. Sorry, Prime Minister, I, I get a bit confused. Anyway, Oleg then moves everything and everyone down from Novgorod because his new capital, in inverted commas, has a superb strategic location. It being shorter trading route to the south. Which is all well and good, except that he probably doesn't do that, as there is good archaeological evidence to suggest that Kiev outdoing Novgorod in terms of size and importance didn't happen until at least the mid-10th century. Then the next we hear of Oleg, according to the sources, is in the year 911. Yes, 911. That's almost 30 years after the events in Kiev. And what does he do? Well, he decides to invade Constantinople. We're told he has 80,000 men and some 2,000 boats or ships. Now, obviously, these figures are exaggerated. 
And significantly, there is no mention of this so-called invasion in the Byzantine sources. But again, let's continue to run with things, assume it did happen. And if it did, it appears to have been successful from the Rus side of things, as without any actual fighting, it pressured the Byzantines, who we are told tried to poison Oleg during the early part of the negotiations, to pay tribute to all of the key Rus chiefs and provide them with a highly favourable trade deal, which included provision for Kievan merchants to reside in Constantinople for six months of each year. And with all of this agreed, we're told that Rus left to return north and that as they departed, Oleg nailed his shield to the main gates of the city. I guess as a kind of, Oleg was here and I can come back any time, so please don't forget it, statement. But I think trade rather than con conquest was surely the realistic aim of both this incursion and the taking of Kiev, if indeed they happened. Because from that time, on each year in June, according to the Byzantine sources, a vast flotilla of Rus boats makes its way south, bearing furs, wax, honey, and most importantly slaves, beating off Pechenegg raiding parties, struggling over and around the rapids to eventually arrive in Constantinople. And then a couple of months later, back to the north they go, with their silk fabrics, spices, wine, and cash, up the Dnieper, first to Kiev, and then this trading bounty is distributed throughout the rest of the Rus lands, and some of it, no doubt, makes its way back across to Scandinavia. So we can see some evidence from our main sources for a Grand Prince Oleg, or an Oleg of Novgorod, but what about the epithets, the wise, or the prophet, that I previously mentioned? Well, for the wise bit, there's not a lot to go on, unless, of course, you consider take the taking of Kiev, and the trade agreement with Byzantium, which I suppose were both wise moves. And what about Oleg the prophet? Well, the primary chronicle gives us one glimpse of a prophecy, but it's not Oleg doing the prophesizing or the prophesying. Apparently, it was foretold by a pagan Rus priest that Oleg's stallion would be the cause of his death. So being somewhat wise, and to defy the prophecy, Oleg had the horse sent away. Many years later, he asked where his horse was and was told it had died. And so Oleg, being curious, asked to see the remains and was taken to the place where the horse's bones lay, and whereupon he touched the horse's skull with his boot and a poisonous snake slithered from the skull and bit him, causing Oleg to die and fulfilling the prophecy. And we're told that this happened in the year 912, although the Novgorod Chronicle states 922. And the enigmatic Oleg, who was by this time in his late 60s, is taken away to his final resting place, which in true early Rus style could either be in Kiev or indeed at Staraya Ladoga. Okay, going to leave things there in Rusland and take a look at some of the notable events that happened elsewhere in the year 912. So in the Byzantine Empire, on May the 11th, Emperor Leo V, the Wise, dies after a 26-year reign in which he, which he had completed 
the Byzantine Code of Laws, or Vasilica. In Western Europe, there's a bit of a spat going on as the German dukes, Henry the Fowler, I love that name, of Saxony, and Arnulf I, the Bad, equally like that one, of Bavaria, claim themselves to be sovereign princes, not recognising the authority of their overlord, King Conrad I of the East Frankish Kingdom, as he is not a Carolingian. In Italy, also the second becomes the Doge of Venice. He sends his son Pietro to Constantinople in order to establish a relationship with the new emperor, Alexander III. And then finally in Britain, Lady Ethelfled of the Mercians. And Ethelfled is, she's a very interesting character. Uh, she's the daughter of Alfred the Great. She expands her defensive policy against the Vikings of the Danelaw by building fortified burrs at Shrewsbury and Bridge North. Okay, that's it, we're done. We've covered the life and times of the mysterious and enigmatic Oleg as best we can, and we've met the Bruce's neighbours who will be popping up from time to time as our story moves inexorably forward. Next time out, we'll be taking a look at Igor, Rurik's son, and his wife Olga, and no doubt the sources will be their usual helpful selves. Before I disappear, just a quick mention that the podcast website is historyofrussia.podbean.com. This is where I post any visual aids such as maps, stats and timelines for any of the episodes that need them. And if you want to get in touch, then either leave me a comment via your podcasting platform of choice if you can, or if you've got a question, then drop me a mail at nordicworldoutlook.com. Okay, that's it. Until next time, stay safe. Keep your head down and I'll see you soon.